Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, thanks for joining us on Mortification of Spin today. We have a bully pulpit for you today. Now, I've got to tell you right up front that it is Amy and I taking the reins on this one because Carl, our friend and globe-trotting celebrity, is in Australia, and he did not want to record at midnight his time. And I know, I know. It's a little bit of a wimp. Mm -hmm. Um, But we have something special for you today. One of the things that we've talked about doing in the past, and I don't think we've hardly done it, maybe just once or twice, is to deal with some listener questions. And we've actually been getting some really good questions lately, ones that are very thought-provoking, ones that are very challenging, some that are so controversial, I'm not about to touch them, so I'm going to have Amy and Carl deal with them at some point. But we've got some really good questions. And before Amy reads a couple of these for us, I just want to say, I went on Facebook less than an hour ago and said, hey, any questions out there that y'all might have us address. And Amy, I hadn't discussed this one with you, but I think you will agree, particularly considering some of the things that you're into, that you'll agree that this is a vital question that demands our attention. And the question is this, is Ric Flair the greatest athlete of all time? Is Ric Flair the greatest athlete of all time? Now, oh my gosh. Now, it's a great question, but on the other hand, it's almost rhetorical because uh, duh, of course he's the greatest athlete of what? all time. <laughs> Ric Flair, the nature boy, is the greatest athlete of all time. You heard it here on Mortification of Spin. As we all know, Amy is a huge fan of wrestling and all of the other violent <laughs> sports. And I think that she would agree with me. No, Amy, yeah. do Rick you dare Flair? to disagree? Do you dare to disagree with that? Dare. I dare. How do you dare? Well, we need to talk about a real sport first. Oh, come on. You telling me you telling me that those guys are not athletes. I know we have some friends on Twitter who will, you know, be ready to hang me for saying that one or bring mm. the firing torches out for me, but okay. pitchforks. But uh, seriously? Absolutely. Absolutely. And he might Listen. be the best tanned. Oh, he has, the, he, he has uh, a you know, great tan. He has bleached hair. I don't he has, know. He has beautifully feathered hair. Men <laughs> aren't wearing it much like that anymore. It is feathered and lethal. Best and, uh, I don't even know if he gets that. Oh, yes, he does. Anyway, listeners out there, I apologize for, for Amy at this point. I know that she is scandalizing some of you, but just let it be known that my fellow Ric Flair fans, we have it right on this one. Well, Amy, on to lesser questions, questions of lesser <laughs> import. Um, yeah, give us the first question here. Okay, well, the first question is kind of a pushback about us and how we define our terms because it says... I have a question for the Mortification of Spin hosts. How do they define the word gospel? I listened to a podcast episode, and they used that word above all other words, it seems. In other words, they used the word many times, but no definition was given for the word, I felt. Okay. So, we're listening. Yeah, I feel pretty sure we have defined it, but how about we let the Apostle Paul define it? Um, In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul says this, For I delivered to you as of first importance, that's why we say gospel a lot, it is the matter of first importance, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. So, Paul identifies this as, as the gospel of grace, and it's very simply defined. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, and he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. Again, Paul is anchoring those two realities, the dying of Christ for sinners, and yep, and the resurrection, not only as the matter of first importance, but also as it being according to the scriptures, meaning he's right. tying it to what we call the Old Testament. So, Paul rightly understands that this is not a, a New Testament innovation, but something that comes organically from the older, the first Testament. It is at the center of the biblical revelation, but it is not a vague message. It is not a plastic message that we can kind of mold any way we want. It is first and foremost, uh, the message of Christ dying for sinners and his resurrection. That's One, it's the a gospel. It's a message. It's it good is a news. Message. He says he received it. That's right. So, it is, yeah. And thanks for pointing that out because it is a, and this is one of the things that is so otherworldly about Christianity. In Romans chapter one, Paul calls the gospel, the power of God. We maintain that the power of God is most clearly seen in the proclamation of a message, mm-hmm. um, something that the world would recognize as very weak, not only the content being weak, but the method weak. It is a message, the pronouncement. And that word gospel was a quote-unquote secular term that the church adopted, and it was taken primarily from military applications, the bringing back of good news from the battle, of ground gain, of enemies defeated. So, it is a good announcement, an announcement of good news. It's not good advice. It is good news. The announcement and it's not just something he feels, you know, an inner feeling. An inner feeling. It's right. accompanied by evidence here. Right. He appeared. Christ appeared yeah. to Cephas and the others. So, we're not talking about just the experience of Christ risen in my heart. Right. He's saying the tomb was empty. He got out of the tomb. Mm-hmm. And, of course, later in that very chapter, Paul expounds on that further, saying without the resurrection, we're to be pitied. Let's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow right. we die. So, that's the gospel, the good news, the announcement of the dying of Christ for sinners and his glorious and victorious resurrection. Now, one of the dangers here, and we see this in evangelicalism, of course, it happens all the time in in liberal denominations, but unfortunately, we're seeing it some again in evangelicalism, which is the confusion of the gospel with the implications of the gospel. In other words, making its implications the gospel itself. Mm -hmm. And that's a danger we always have to look after. So, So, go ahead. The implications are real absolutely, and, and important, but we don't yeah. want to confuse them. Yeah. Yeah. So, the gospel does have implications. The gospel changes things. The gospel changes people. Um, but, but those are the implications of the gospel. And we never want to mix those things up because if we mix them up, then we end up diluting the gospel itself and losing it. Mm-hmm. So, anything you would add to that before we move on to the next question, Amy? No, I think that's good. I, yeah. Just to highlight that he says that he received it, that he mm-hmm. passed it on, that it's a, this is what is of first importance, yep. and it's accompanied by evidence. Yep. So, our faith has content. Exactly. And one thing, I mean, we've toyed around with doing an episode at some point on just the whole phenomenon of the gospel-centered thing. Everything is gospel-centered, you know. So, if we're going to have cupcakes, there's got to be a way to make gospel-centered <laughs> cupcakes. And, and again… We say gospel a lot because we're gospel people. The gospel is the central message 
of the biblical faith. It is the power of God unto salvation, but we also want to react against the trivializing of the gospel by trying to find a way to make everything gospel-centered. Mm-hmm. And that almost trivializes it to a certain degree. Right, right. We don't want to trivialize it. Yeah, so, you know, enjoy a cupcake. It doesn't have to be a gospel-centered cupcake. Right. God's common grace to all. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Thanks. Cupcakes are good. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, if you don't leave with anything else today, we hope you'll leave, number one, with the fact that Ric Flair is the world's greatest oh. death, and number two, that cupcakes are good, even if they aren't gospel-centered. Okay, Amy, question number two. Okay, question number two. Would you please consider addressing on the podcast how Christians are to relate to those who teach erroneous doctrine? I'm thinking, for example, of those who teach federal vision, new perspective ideas. As a follow-up, is it okay to state someone is a heretic based on our evaluation of what they're teaching, or should this only be reserved to a situation where a church trial has occurred? Oh, good question. Yeah. Questions. Yeah. Because sometimes, you know, on social media, you'll see that term heresy used pretty loosely. Right. A a Lutheran is a heretic because they have a different understanding of, you know, the Lord's Supper from a Presbyterian. So, you know, Mm -hmm. so some guy, some loose cannon will call him a heretic. And and we do want to distinguish, as the questioner suggests, we do want to distinguish between what we might identify as, as error. And right. what you might want to identify as heresy. The first thing that comes to my mind, Amy, is that is that heresy is a species of error. It would be what we would want to call a damning species of error. In other words, if a heresy is something that if you believe this, if you hold to this, you, you can't be regenerate and hold to this idea at the same time. So, for instance, we, there are Mormons who are now more and more, although a hundred years ago they wouldn't have said this, more and more now wanting to fit in with the mainstream. We have Mormons calling themselves Christians. Mm-hmm. And we would say, no, you're not. You're right. not Christian because, among other things, you deny the Trinity. And to deny the Trinity, we would call a damning error because mm-hmm. you don't believe in God. Whatever it is you believe in, you don't believe in the God who is there. So that's kind of big picture heresy Mm -hmm. thing. What would you add to that? Well, I would say in order to define heresy, we have to define orthodoxy, which is another word that's kind of used uh, broadly. And sometimes it's used in a negative way. And um, I would say that, first of all, orthodoxy is an act of love. (laughs) Mm. And that loving truth leads to communicating truth with the goal of living in unity of that truth. So, um, orthodoxy is about how we communicate God's truth. And it's what the true church has historically affirmed and denied Mm -hmm. about the first principles of God and salvation that's revealed in his word. So, I think that we look to the history of what the church, the true church, has historically affirmed and denied in our creeds. Right, right. That's communicating orthodoxy. And so, as a part of that, then we would say just me individually or you individually don't have the authority to just declare someone a heretic because we don't happen to like what they believe or agree with what they believe. The church historically has established boundaries for what is actual kind of damning error, heresy. Right. And would you agree that, for instance, if you look at some of the oldest of the historic creeds, you go back, for instance, to the, the Apostles' Creed, which the first iterations of the Apostles' Creed 
go back as early as the second century. What's in the Apostles' Creed is kind of a mere Christianity, basically, Mm -hmm. and that you can be a Christian without understanding or having heard of every single point in the Apostles' Creed. But if you actively deny, if you know and understand Mm -hmm. what is declared, for instance, in the Apostles' Creed, and deliberately deny those things, that would probably fall under the category of heresy. Right. Because you're dealing with first principles Mm -hmm. in the Apostles' Creed. Right. Yeah. Right. And the Nicene Creed is another. Sure. Uh, Came up a lot during the, the Trinity debate. Right. Because we're talking there about the nature of the Godhead itself and what would distinguish historic biblical christianity for something that is different mm-hmm. yeah it's funny though it's like this is the second time in two days that i've read the word erroneous the first mm-hmm. time was actually in a one-star review given for my latest book on amazon <laughs> <laughs> oh did you find that one i wrote i, I, I didn't intend apparently to put my name it's full it. of erroneous teaching <laughs> i intended that to be anonymous but but you sent that to me, and what was interesting about that, what was interesting about that, and I would love for guys like the Bailey brothers to read that, because you were, this person was taking you to the woodshed because this person who gave your book a bad review is a lady minister, and she just thought your book was terrible and hostile and hate-filled bigotry. So, I thought, man, you know, the Bailey brothers ought to love you now then, you know, because, <laughs> because women ministers just hate you. <laughs> So, that word erroneous is really being used. Right, right. Well, I don't think you're a heretic, Amy. (laughs) Nor do I think you're a hate-filled bigot. Now, Amy, before we started recording, you asked an interesting question regarding this difference between heresy and error. You asked an interesting question about where does affirming homosexuality and some of this gender madness, where does that fall in that continuum? Are we talking about serious error, but not necessarily damning, or are we talking about heresy here. So, what, what are your thoughts in regard to that? Well, I have a couple thoughts. First is, if we are affirming homosexuality as holy, yeah. then we've already broken some first order principles to get there. Mm. So, I think it's a secondary thing in that sense. You have to break some first order principles about who God is, who man is, what holiness even means. Yeah to get to that. And um, so, I think it's very serious and connected to orthodoxy. But the odd part is now we're talking about identity, where it used to be different. I mean, Carl continues to hammer the nail that it used to be that sexuality was about what we do. And now it's about who we are. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's all these connections with anthropology and who am I? Yeah, and and the relationship between the creature and the creator, as you intimated earlier, the embrace of homosexuality Mm -hmm. and the gender confusion. We're talking about sin and morality here, which is a consequence of, you know. Absolutely. We're we're redefining sin. We're redefining holiness, which in order to do that, you have to change the biblical conception of God. Mm -hmm. You have to. And so, back to Amy's point is… Once we get to the point of denying what the Bible says about these clear sexual boundaries, once we get to the point of placing a benediction upon homosexuality, we've already, either consciously or unconsciously, tinkered around significantly with what God is like, who God is, and how we relate to him. Is that fair to say? And how we are saved. Yeah, all of that, and who man is. Right. So, I think that sexuality or homosexuality itself 
isn't like a first order orthodox right. issue. It's secondary in the sense that it's a result of it's getting the first order of denying yes. first order. Yes. I, yeah, I think that's good, and I think that's because because what happens is is you've got. Well, it, one interesting illustration of this is you've got Fred Harrell out in San Francisco, and everybody remembers that story. He used to be a PCA minister, planted a PCA church in San Francisco with lots of money from good, faithful PCA churches, and he ended up leading them to the RCA, and now they've become an open and affirming church, so to speak, for homosexuality. And lo and behold, just recently, through his Twitter account, it's become clear now that he has decided to jettison penal substitutionary atonement. Mm-hmm which is at the very heart of the gospel. What did God do on the cross? And so there's a clear connection between these things. And so as much as people like Matthew Vines and others want to say that you can hold orthodox Christology, orthodox theology, and affirm homosexuality, we're saying, no, you can't. Mm -hmm. Because whether you're conscious of it or not, once you affirm homosexuality, you've already changed what you believe about those first order things. And that's the importance of orthodoxy, because like I said, I think that we've gotten away from the point that orthodoxy is about how we communicate God's truth. And so, if we're not communicating that well, if we're not confessing that, Mm -hmm. then orthodoxy just becomes like what I feel is God's truth. And that isn't the case at all. That's not what orthodoxy is. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, I think we summed up those two questions pretty well. What about you, Todd? I think we have given the definitive answer on those yeah. questions. And, Maybe. and they, they need not ever be asked again. <laughs> Maybe we'll get more questions from <laughs> those questions. Yeah. But, you know, I would say we want to do a little bit more of this and please yeah. feel free to, to send in, you know how to get in touch with us through social media. Please send in questions. We're in the process of having someone catalog some of those questions for us and we'd be happy to do that. So, Amy, take us home. All right. Well, thank you for listening to Mortification of Spin. And we'd like to give away a resource for you if you stop by our website at mortificationofspin.org. And we are giving away a resource that you can enter to win um, by Guy Waters, A Christian's Pocket Guide to Justification. And while you're there, you could give us a donation so that we can continue our work here at the podcast. We also appreciate your prayers for us as we continue to do this. And We'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about what is the significance of the alone after the word grace. I think there's so many different ways that people throw that term around, and a lot of times it just becomes kind of a de-sentiment. And I think that actually makes the Christian life much simpler when you understand God's grace. We're always looking for the magic bullet or the technique that will solve problems. I think if you have a good understanding of God's grace, it takes a lot of pressure off. That interview is next time. Join us then.
Okay, so the questioner asks specifically about federal vision and new perspective on Paul. Is that heresy or is that error? Well, good question. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean... You know, I mean, I think both of us are struggling because... Yeah, I'm struggling because, with this one, actually. I'll tell you what we ought to do. We ought to, um, we ought to let Carl say once and for all whether yeah, or not... Yeah, let's leave this one to Carl. <laughs> okay, 